Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're going to be looking at the second half, uh, roughly the second half, beginning with verse 25. Uh, we looked at the other, uh, the first half last week. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul starts it out in verse 25, now concerning virgins. Uh, what he means by that is basically the unmarried. And uh, Paul is, as he's teaching this next portion of scripture we're going to look at, he's speaking particularly of, of unmarried women, but the principles apply to both males and females. Um, and why is uh, Paul addressing this? Well, there is a letter that he had received. We don't have a record of it where there were some questions posed to him. And last week we had dealt with some of the answers that he had to some question. Again, we don't know what the questions are. We kind of have a, a clue based on his responses of uh, this question or this, this answer that Paul is dealing with right now. It possibly is regarding uh, maybe, maybe one of the parents in the church a mother or a father, or maybe both. You know, they're, they're born-again believers in Jesus Christ, and they're asking Paul, again, we don't know for sure, but it seems like, based on his answer, should I not allow my daughter to marry uh, and force her, or should I force her to remain celibate the rest of her life? Uh, and you might say, what kind of parent would do that? Well, that was the culture that Paul lived in. The culture was arranged marriages. Um, you know, for us Westerners, that's a totally foreign concept, but you know, it even happens to this day. We had a family that from India here uh, a number of years ago, and their marriage was an arranged marriage, and it was interesting watching them because uh, they had just been married as they came into our fellowship, and just watching them kind of growing together, and, and there were bumps, as any marriage has bumps, but we, we saw just, it was, it was a neat thing to see, and it really kind of changed my own concept of it. You know, uh, speaking of India, the, the nation of India, and I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but from what I could tell, from what I found, and it's Google, so it's got to be true, um, <laughs> as many as 90% of all Indian marriages are arranged. Now, again, I don't know if that's exactly true, but here's an interesting study. Uh, only about one in 100 Indian marriages end in divorce. Only one in 100. I don't know what the statistics are for the United States, or, but it's got to be a lot higher than that. So, you know, uh, that doesn't mean, um, you know, having an arranged marriage doesn't mean a bad marriage. I mean, you think about it, uh, you know, if all these people are picking spouses and everybody's getting divorced, uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not the answer necessarily. Again, I'm not trying to preach arranged marriages some of you parents are going, yeah, we're for it. <laughs> but uh, listen, look at the bright side. If you were in an arranged marriage and uh, you had a lousy marriage, you could blame someone else for your marriage, right? <laughs> My parents, it's their fault, man. <laughs> However, if you chose your spouse uh, and you have a stinking, rotten marriage, you, you can only blame yourself, right? You can't blame your parents. You can't blame anybody else. It's just you can blame me if you want. But I mean, so... Anyways, but that was the culture that Paul lived in at that time. And, and so he's addressing the cultural issues of his day. Again, the principles, uh, they apply to both married uh, men, or unmarried men and women, but they apply today too, the principles that we're going to be looking at. 
So verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. What does he mean? I have no commandment from the Lord. In other words, there's no specific commands about this issue that Paul is going to address in one way or the other. In other words, he's looking at it from an individual basis, and uh, one size does not fit all in this situation. And some of you guys struggle with that, right? What, what do you mean? There's, you know, it's black and white and everything's got to fit. And, and even here, Paul is like, you know, there's no command from the Lord. There's no commandment here, okay? It's not a black and white issue, basically. Paul is giving his advice here. Now, as I say that, you need to understand something. It's still inspired scripture. Even though it's Paul's advice, it's still inspired scripture. Um, Paul says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one in whom the Lord has made trustworthy. Listen, Paul knew the scriptures. Paul knew the heart of the Lord. And Paul was able to apply that in making his judgments or his advice here. Verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, uh, I, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Last week, we talked about the fact that there were Gentiles. Many of the, the, the Corinthian church, the majority of believers were Gentiles, pagans, you know, and they, in, a, in a very, very hedonistic society, kind of like ours today, but, you know, just crazy, the sexual immorality and everything. And so these believers in Jesus Christ, they're like, well, you know, my spouse didn't get saved. Maybe I need to divorce them because they're not Christians. Or, you know, so there was all these confusions. And, and with the rampant sexual immorality, there were believers that were, they were coming to faith in the Lord, like, now maybe I should be celibate the rest of my life. And we talked about that last week. Uh, but Paul says, because of the present distress. So what is the present distress? Again, we're not really told. Uh, it could be rampant immorality, which certainly was the case. It would have been a very difficult environment for a brand new baby born again believer in Jesus Christ to live in a society like that. It could possibly have been some kind of local persecution that was going on, too. Again, we don't really know. But, but given what Paul is looking at, he's looking around at the situation, and he says, given the present distress, Paul recommends not marrying in that situation. However, with a caveat, he says, uh, if you do marry, you're not sinning, okay? So it's not, a, it's not again, it's not a black and white uh, issue. But Paul knows... And I would say probably from experience, I personally believe Paul was married at some point. Paul knows that marriage is not necessarily the answer to what ails you. If you're single here tonight, today, maybe you're thinking, man, that's the answer to life. Man, I just need a, I need a husband or I need a wife. And if that happens, man, I'm, my life is great. Uh, spend some time talking to some married people. You figure out that that's not the answer, okay? It's not the answer. Um, so Paul says, now again, uh, you know, being married, it has its own issues and problems. And again, you could talk to any married couple here in this fellowship and they'd say, yeah, they, yeah, we have issues and we have problems. There's a, now, there is blessings, okay? There is blessings to being married. Uh, I'm a blessed man being married and, and I'm thankful for my wife. So uh, I'm not saying, you know, uh, marriage is terrible. You know, don't even seek marriage or anything like that. But Paul says something here. He says, do not seek a wife. 
And that word seek or do not seek a husband, uh, that word seek, it's an interesting word. It means to seek in order to find. And if you're looking, if you're seeking for something, you want to find it, right? I mean, that's kind of common sense. But it goes beyond that. It means to seek in order to find out by thinking, by meditating, by reasoning, by inquiring into it. And it also means to crave or demand. So the, what he's saying here, the seeking, it means if, if it's possessing your waking moments, all you can think about is, man, I gotta get married, I gotta get married, I gotta get married, I need a husband, I need a wife, whatever. That's what this is talking about. If, if, it's, if it's completely controlling you, Paul says don't seek a wife or don't seek a husband. So, so what are you to do? It's not a sin if you get married. It's not, it's not sin to desire a husband or a wife. Um, so what do you do? Don't seek sleep. Seriously. Now, I didn't say sleep around, okay? Get me, don't get me wrong here. I didn't say that. Don't seek sleep. The reason why I say that is what we need to do is consider the very first marriage in the Bible, and that's in the book of Genesis. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple scriptures to you. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man, we know that to be Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Verse 18, it goes on, it says, And the Lord God said to, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So at this point, if you're reading the, the story, Abraham or Abraham, Adam has no clue that he needs a wife. He doesn't even know what a wife is at this point. He's this, he's created, he's in the garden. He's got a God, you know, he's, it's, it's, that's all he knows. And, uh, but God knew his need even before Adam did. God knew that he needed a wife. And so in verse 19 of Genesis 2, it says, Out of the ground the, uh, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and the, to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So if you can just picture the scene. Here's Adam, happy as a clam. By himself. He didn't know what a clam was. He had to come up with a name. But happy as a, some creature, right? He's happy. And he's given the task of naming the, all the animals. So here comes Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, okay? And Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan. And Mr. and Mrs. Penguin. And as he's saying, he's going, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. And then he starts thinking, wait a minute. I'm just a mister. <laughs> and, and, and it was at that point that Adam realized probably that, uh, hey, there's something kind of, something's not right here. There's something different about me and all these animals that I'm naming. It was at that time, I think, is when it says there, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. I think at that point, it's just like it dawned on Adam. Hey, there's something not right here. At that point, he probably realized he needed something. Of course, again, he didn't know what a wife was at that point. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib in which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Um, you know, guys, has your wife ever said, man, there's, there's something missing. <laughs> you're, just, you're just not all there. It's true. We're not all there. Adam was not all there. God took a part of Adam and fashioned a woman, fashioned Eve out of uh, Adam and brought her to him to complete him. 
what he was lacking. God knew exactly what Adam needed and, and, and brought them together. And uh, so when I say don't seek uh, a wife or a husband but sleep, I don't mean literal sleeping. What I mean is just relax, okay? Um, let the Lord bring your spouse to you because he knows what you need. Uh, he's got the right spouse that's just right for you, compatible for you. Uh, he knows what you're missing. And, that's, and so just, just relax. Allow the Lord to bring that spouse to you. Again, if it's your desire to be married, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, with that desire. In fact, if you're not gifted with the gift of celibacy, you're going to get married at some point, okay? Or at least hopefully you will. Um, uh, if very few people are gifted with the gift of cel celibacy for lifelong, um, if you are not gifted, you will marry. So just don't don't stress out. Uh, don't seek sleep. And so you're thinking, wait. So you mean one day I can just I don't have to do anything, and then boom, one day this person walks into my life, and there's my husband or there's my wife. And you know, there's some things you can actually do. There's some things that you can actually do. And this is, uh, again, I have no commandment from the Lord, but this is Pastor Don saying, uh, make yourself attractive. Well, did he say that? Make yourself attractive? Yes, I did say that. Not physically attractive. Make yourself spiritually attractive. Study God's word. Learn what it is to become a godly man or a godly woman. Focus on that in your life right now. Learn also, read scriptures. Learn what a godly man or a godly woman looks like so you can recognize when she pops into your wife. Go, hey, there's a godly man. I'd like him for my husband. Or there's a godly woman. Boy, she'd make a great wife. Learn what God's word says. Don't, don't take it from the culture. What the culture says, a husband or wife, that's, don't do that. Learn what a godly man or woman looks like from the word. Here's another thing. Pray for your future spouse. I go, what? I don't even know who he or she is. Absolutely. Pray for them. Pray that the Lord would be preparing them for you. And also pray that the Lord would be protecting them for you. Because if you're being tempted to commit sexual immorality, chances are they are too. Pray for them. Pray for them. Just, so pray for your spouse, your future spouse. These are just words of advice for me. I, I wish I had done that. Nobody told me to do that when, when I was getting married. I wish somebody had done that. What an awesome thing to meet your wife or your husband and say, you know what, I've been praying for you. I've been, you know, I prayed about this and, you know, just the amazing thing that I would do. So anyway, just encouragement. Again, that's not scripture. That's just my advice. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So Paul has a general principle for any state of life that you're in. If you are married or you're unmarried or you're widowed or whatever, you're divorced, whatever it is, there's a general principle that Paul is saying here regarding any station in life. And the principle is this, the time is short. And uh, he's not talking about the life of the person, the reader. Although that's true, right? Our lives are short. The older we get, the, real, the, the more we realize, man, life has been, it's just phew, uh, last week, 
Memorial Day, that was right before Memorial Day, and uh, uh, he's not here this morning, but Van Walter, he's a Vietnam veteran, and he came up to me after the service, he said, do you realize it was 50 years ago I enlisted in the, in the Army? 50 years ago. He goes, where did the time go? You know, the older we get, isn't that true? Man, it's just like, where did the time go? I still feel like I'm in my 20s. My body doesn't, but I, my mind does. But that's not what Paul's referring to. Even though James, in his epistle, says that our lives are just a vapor. No, what Paul is saying here, the time is short, he's talking about the time until the Lord returns for his bride. That's what Paul's referring to. In the classical Greek, the word short means furling sails. If you're a sailor, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I had to look it up. But basically, it's wrapping up the sails. Or packing luggage. Or reducing expenses. Applied to time, the word is very graphic. The time is short. It's time to wrap things up, basically, is what Paul is saying. What's fascinating to me here. Paul, okay, he gives so much information. You know, when you study, if you like eschatology, that's the study of last days, prophecy and stuff. If you're into that, most of the stuff that you read in the New Testament anyways, it's written by Paul. Paul talks so much about it. Peter does too, but, but Paul does so much uh, teaching about last days. He teaches so much about the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Theologically, Paul's eschatology is correct. Okay, I don't think anyone would argue with that. Paul knew what he was talking about. Um, and yet here, he's talking about the time is short, speaking of the Lord returning for his bride. So Paul, get this, Paul in his time thought the Lord could return any day. Wow, why did he think that? The reason why is because nothing prophetically is preventing the return of Jesus Christ for his church, for the rapture. No, there's nothing prophetically uh, waiting or, or standing in the way of the Lord returning for his church. That's why every generation is like, man, Jesus could come back anytime, which is true. Jesus can. And yet today, we have so many people that are so much wiser than Paul that they say, no, 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 the Lord can't return for his church until this certain thing takes place. That's not what Paul believed. Paul said it could happen anytime, and time is short. Jesus could come back anytime. So in light of the Lord's return, Paul had the principle, okay, the time is short, and then he gives some applications. So what do you do with that? Okay, the time is short, but how does it affect me? This is what Paul says. The first application, from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Wow. <laughs> okay, so I got to go live a single life, right? I'm married, but I'm, I'm just going to walk away and do my, do my own thing. Paul can't mean disregarding your spouse and going to serve the Lord instead. Honey, I'm going to go to a monastery. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> I'm going to go serve the Lord in Bangladesh or some other place, you know. Um, Paul can't mean that because in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're a husband, man, it's God's, it's God's will, it's God's command that you provide for your family. You need to. Paul doesn't mean that. What does Paul mean? Paul means don't let family relationships keep you from serving the Lord. And that applies to anybody, married or unmarried. You know, sometimes people have this attitude, well, when we retire, that's when we're going to serve the Lord. Well, I'm busy working right now, but when I retire, man, that's, I'm going to give myself to ministry. Or how about this? When the kids grow up and move on, then we'll get involved in ministry. 
then we'll serve the Lord in some capacity. Paul basically is saying, develop the habit of serving the Lord now in the station of life the Lord has you because he's returning soon, coming at any moment. In fact, and I would say this, involve your spouse and children in serving. Kindle in them a desire to serve alongside as they serve alongside you. You're setting an example. You're building time together. Um, le- yesterday, man, I was blessed by how many individuals came here to serve. And men- I mean, we were blown away. I wasn't expecting as many people that showed up. It was a blessing uh, doing the timbers. Uh, most of you guys are probably sore after lifting those heavy things and stuff. And, and the people that came to, vel- to uh, minister uh, for the VBS, it was a blessing. And uh, I want to commend all of you in that. But let me say this. And this is not a a condemnation. This is an encouragement. Where were your kids? Why didn't you just bring your kids, bring the whole family and serve together? Um, One of the families did that. The Thompsons were here. Man, and and I know the Corbecks were here too. Uh, Ministering as a family together. Everybody was involved doing stuff. That is awesome because you're setting an example for your children. Now, again, this is not condemnation. If you came by yourself, God bless you. I commend you. I'm thankful for your serving. But, But let me encourage you, involve your family in serving because it'll develop in them That's how they learn, basically, is by watching you and serving alongside of you. Listen to this. Quality family time. What's your definition of quality family time? I bet you a lot of people would say, what's vacation? Get away from the stress of work. Get away from all the junk. and Let's go out and camp out together. Let's go fish. or Let's do this or that together. That's quality family time. But listen, and it is, but it doesn't have to just be vacationing together. Quality family time is serving together, too. I want to encourage you guys in that, working alongside each other. It's great to do as a family. So that's the first application. Don't let family relationships get in the way of you serving the Lord. Here's the second application. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Now, Paul is not saying don't weep or rejoice. Don't be emotional. Paul is not saying to be spiritual is to be stoic. That was one of the philosophies of his day. Because Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Always rejoice. In Acts 20.31, Paul's talking. He says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul is not saying don't be emotional. Don't cry. Don't be happy. Don't rejoice. But this is what I think Paul is trying to get across. Don't let your attitude be, you start serving, you go, man, this isn't fun. I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't enjoy this, so I'm not going to do it. Don't let that be your attitude. I need to be, I need to be happy all the time. And don't be uh, ruled by your emotions. Don't let your emotions dictate if and when you will serve the Lord. And I tell you, that's a tough thing. There's many times when it's like, man, I don't feel like ministering. A lot of Sunday mornings, man, I don't feel like going to church, but I have to. I'm the pastor, so i got to be here. Um, and uh, so Teresa kicks me out the door. Get over there, you bum. No. <laughs> no, don't be rule. Don't let your emotions dictate if and when you'll serve the Lord. Paul says this, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means somebody's rejoicing. Hey, rejoice with them. 
Somebody's going through a dark time. Man, weep with them. What is, what is Paul saying by that? Paul is saying, focusing, don't focus on yourself and your own emotions. Focus on someone else. Rejoice with them or weep with them. Because if you focus on yourself and your own emotions, that, those are the things that will prevent us from serving the Lord. Start thinking more about others and less of yourself. J. Vernon McGee has a little bit of a different spin on this, and I think it's perfectly ap applicable too. He says, are you going to let some sorrow, some tragedy in life keep you from serving God? And there are people that have gone through a difficult thing and maybe a death or something or something terrible happened in there, and now they're just, they're on neutral. They're not, they're not doing anything. Don't let some tragedy dictate the rest of your life. Don't let it keep you from serving the Lord. He also says this, are you going to let pleasure take the place of your relationship with God as many do? There are a lot of people today, man, I just, I just want to live. I want to enjoy my life. I want to have fun. I want to do this or that or that. Don't let that get in the way of your relationship with the Lord. Here's the third application of that principle, time is short. Those who buy as though they did not possess, those who use this world is not misusing it. Again, Paul is not saying it is more spiritual to be poor. Some people think that. It's not more spiritual to be poor and without possessions. Paul wrote Philippians 4.12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. There were times when Paul had plenty. He had possessions. He had, you know, wealth or whatever. I mean, I don't think it was wealthy, but I mean, he had, he had things. And there were times when he didn't. And so it's not more spiritual to be poor and without possessions. But here's what I think Paul is saying. Don't let your focus be on the wealth and materialism of this world. Why? Because one day it's all going to burn sooner than we all think, probably. Not only that, but you may not even live long enough to enjoy what you're, whatever it is you're focusing on or striving for. And the last reason, man, whatever, you know, you put, you put all your eggs in one basket and all of a sudden it's not worth anything. Or someone steals it. It's gone. Remember when the Enron scandal went on? All those the credit unions, all these people, man, their life savings was swindled from them. Stole, you know, and you're thinking, man, I got, I got my time, I got my time, and then it's boom, it's gone. I always bring up this, this uh, example, and I think it, it always hits home to me, but you know, think about the Jewish people in Europe prior to World War II. They were very wealthy. And when the Holocaust came out, you know, I mean, when that happened, they lost everything. So you're striving for something, and you, I mean, I've got, you build up this thing. Man, don't put your trust in that, because one day it could go, either you're going to die before you can enjoy it, uh, uh, or it's all going to burn, the Lord's going to return, and it doesn't matter anyways, or it, it, someone's going to take it from you, or it's going to become valueless, especially with our economy. You know, who knows what could happen? <laughs> Here's the key. Don't be possessed by your possessions. That's the, really the key, I think Paul is saying here. Jesus kind of addressed that in Luke 8, 14. He's talking about the seeds. Remember the, the parable of the sower of the seeds and they, they landed on different kinds of soil and what happened to them? He said this about one of the group of seeds. He says, now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. So you know, we're in the world. We possess possessions, possessions, but live as though you don't possess them. 
Live as though, you know, use this world, but don't misuse it. Don't let that be your focus. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 32, Paul says this, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his life. His goal, he says, I don't want you, or I want you to be without care. In other words, to not be choked with the cares that we just read about in Luke 8, 14. Why? Listen, the married state is full of cares. It's full of cares. Even when the husband and wife have the right, you know, they've got their priorities right. They serve together. They minister together. Uh, they, you know, they, they've got their, their, their priorities on their possessions and wealth. They've got all that right. Um, you know, they're, they're serving in whatever capacity. Uh, they still have cares. Even when everything is balanced in that regard, a married husband or wife can't just like, you know what? I'm going to Kathmandu, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm going to go serve the Lord in, in wherever, you know, Nepal or something like that. Uh, why? You can't because you're married. You've got, you've got other people that are, you're responsible for, you're involved with. Uh, a single person, you know, uh, they're much more free in that regard. You know, uh, uh, single people in this fellowship, you know, you guys want to go do something, yeah, go do it, right? Hey, I'm going to go to a concert, I'm going to go do this. You're free to do that, bless you. For me, I can't just, hey, I'm taking off. Hey, Teresa, we'll see you in about a week. You know, I can't do that, right? You can't do that. Well, you could do that. Teresa wouldn't care if you leave, but <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> The married state is full of cares. Um, a single person only has to be concerned with food and shelter for themselves. But married people have others responsible that are relying on them. Now, that doesn't mean that a married person can't trust in the Lord. We can't say, Lord, you know, as a, as a husband and wife, we can't come to agreement and go, you know what? I really believe the Lord's calling us to Nepal or to Kathmandu or something. We're going to sell everything and go, man, the Lord does that. That's awesome. But you can't just, if you're married, you can't just one day call up your wife. Hey, honey, I've got a plane ticket. I'm going to Kathmandu and, uh, you know, take care of the house while I'm gone. I'm serving the Lord, man. I'm doing God's work. You can't do that. But you can, but you won't be married very long if you do. <laughs> so it's a factor in ministry. The married person has a lot more cares. And they're not bad necessarily, but that's the reality. That's the reality of life. Verse 34. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, than that you may serve the Lord without distraction. He says the unmarried, and he's speaking of the believers, the unmarried cares about the things of the Lord to be both holy uh, to be holy both in body and spirit. You know, Paul's making an assumption here. He's making an assumption that the single Christian, whether it's a man or a woman, is going to be focused on purity and their relationship with the Lord and not on trying to find a spouse. You know, being on the hunt, <laughs> that it's not their focus. You can go to the next slide. <laughs> it's not their focus. I had to laugh because we were talking about that book the other day. Are you my mother? But you know, okay, listen, I was single, so I know, okay, I'm, I'm not judging any of you guys. I, I was this way too. You know, you're single, you're Christian, you're, you know, you're serving the Lord, and someone walks into church and they're not married. It's like, oh, I wonder if that's my spouse. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Are you my spouse? <laughs> Who knows? It might be. 
<sighs> the married person cares about the things of this world. Again, they're not bad things, the, the married woman, but how she may please her husband. Paul says, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper. Paul's not trying to put a burden. Listen, if Paul had insisted single believers never marry and remain celibate the rest of their lives, about 98% and maybe even more of believers would have an undue burden placed upon them. Why? Because the majority of people do not have the gift of celibacy. The majority of people uh, are eventually are going to get married. They need to be married, whatever. By the way, for the husband, or excuse me, for the married here today, husbands, look at verse 33. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Hmm. And the wives, look at verse 34. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Well, there's, there's some marriage counseling right there. Could you imagine if the husband was completely, I mean, it's just like, I just, I just want to please my wife in every way possible rather than making demand. I want to please my wife. And could you imagine if the, same, the wife in that same marriage is like, man, I want to please my husband in every way. Could you imagine what a blessed uh, marriage that would be if both of you were not thinking about yourselves but thinking about the other first? Here's a, there, okay, that's free marriage counseling for one, one session. The next one's gonna, I'm going to charge you guys, but I'm kidding. What a blessing that would be. Verse 36, but if any man thinks he is be behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she has passed the flower of youth and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. That's a tough scripture. <laughs> That's a tough one to understand. Again, we got to put it into context. Remember, the Roman and Greek fathers, they had complete control over the marriage of their daughters. That was the culture. The father married off the daughters. Uh, so that's the culture, and that's what Paul's addressing. And he says, if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin. Now, if you read that in today's culture, you come up with some weird things, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying, basically, if a father recognized that his daughter does not have the gift of, a, of cele, a celebrity, <laughs> gift of celibacy, um, and yet he's unfairly kept her from getting married. He's like, and, and yet, you know, it's obvious that she needs to be married. Um, and the father is unfairly kept her at home and not allowed her to marry. If she has passed the flower of youth, in other words, if she's old enough to get married, then he says, he does not sin, let them marry. And I have to ask, I wonder if somebody wrote a specific particular question. Paul, I've got this situation. Should I let her marry or not? It seems like could be a particular case that Paul's addressing. But he continues, he says, Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Listen, if there was uh, no necessity for the daughter to marry, and she has the gift of self uh, keep on to say celebrity, the gift of celibacy, and he recognizes that the father has power over his own will. What does that mean? Well, it means he's free to decide to uh, keep her unmarried. Again, that's the culture that the husband or the father had complete control. 
And he says, so then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, Paul is giving his advice here, given the present distress. He's not saying it's wrong or right in allowing your virgin daughter or son to marry, but he's basically saying there's a better and there's a best, in Paul's opinion, based on what he saw all around him. In Paul's view of things, it's best to remain single if, that is po if that's possible. But he or she that marries has not sinned, and the father that gives his daughter in marriage has not sinned. It's not a sin issue either way. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking that Pastor Don is saying, I gotta, if I'm single, I can't be looking for a wife, I can't be looking. No, that's not what I'm saying. You're not sinning. It, it, God, if, if you don't have the gift of celebrity, celibacy, celibacy, <laughs> then God, God's placed that in your heart to be married. God bless you, man. But again, go back to that, preparing yourself, making yourself spiritually attractive, praying for your spouse, doing those things, being prepared, and just allowing the Lord to bring the spouse to you. You don't need to get on uh, whatever those websites are. And, you know, I know people that have gone through those and they've gotten married and, and, you know, and it's been good, so I'm not knocking those necessarily, but just want to encourage you. Allow the Lord to bring your spouse to you. Verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So the widow... Or the widower, I think Paul here, he's specifically mentioning the widow, but I, again, I think it applies to both sexes. Listen, if you were, oh, maybe you are here today and you're a widower or a widower, uh, or, you know, just think about this. If you've remained married and your spouse dies, do you know that you were faithful your entire marriage? You were faithful. You completed what God had given you to do. And what a blessing, you know, to say, you know what? I, I was faithful. We, 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 we completed the task. And now, Paul says, and the Lord says too, you're free to remarry only in the Lord. And I believe that means only in another believer, okay, another Christian. Um, but she is happier. Again, it could be a man too if, she was talking, if he was talking about a man, but he's right here it says she. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Do you know if we just had this letter, this is the only letter from Paul that we had, uh, we could probably conclude that Paul is down on marriage, wouldn't we? Seems like he's like, you know, there's a better and a best, and best is not to get married. Or, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, okay, I guess if you want to get married, that's, that's fine, you're not sinning, but if you really want to be spiritual, that's kind of what you do when you read this. If that was the only uh, thing that we had, uh, it was that we'd look at this and go, well, Paul basically believes that it's really spiritual to never marry. But you know what? We don't have just this. We have the book of Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 22 through 27, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We'll skip the rest of this. No, I'm just kidding. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, her and, uh, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, I've done married marriages for believers and for unbelievers, and it doesn't matter if it's believers or unbelievers. I always say, hey, you know what? A marriage is a picture. It's God's picture to the world of his love for his bride, the church. And your marriage is a picture. God's using your marriage as a, as a witnessing tool to the world around you. It's an earthly picture, the relationship of Christ to his bride. I love what John Corson says this, the way a husband lays down his life for his wife and the way a wife submits to her husband is a powerful illustration seen on every street in every neighborhood. Bunches of people aren't going to church, so the Lord brings the church to them through the illustration of marriage, wherein people see how much he loves the church and how the church submits to him. It's an awesome responsibility for all who are married. Wow, pretty heavy. But he says this, unbelievers don't need to see perfection in our marriages, just something remarkably different from what they see in society. We're, we're, we're God's picture to those that don't even, wouldn't even step inside a church, wouldn't even read the Bible. You're my marriage is a picture, an amazing thing. So Paul is not in any way denigrating marriage, okay? He's not. I think the point, if you took all of Paul's teachings on marriages and singled and, and widowhood and divorce and everything, I think this is the principle, the key point. Whatever your station in life is right now, today, whatever it is, be passionate for the Lord where you're at right now. Be passionate. Uh, don't let the commitment of marriage cool that passion for Christ. And don't let the desire to be married become your passion instead of Christ. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get across here this, this morning. Why? Because the time is short.